morning, everyone. Really good to be with you again. Um, I just want to start by saying thank you. Generations has been one of our most enthusiastic supporters for Family Table. And for those of you that I don't know, um, I had been a pastor for about 20 years, and I knew of foster care as an idea. I just actually didn't know anybody impacted by the system. And then God started bringing more and more people to our church, and I started to realize that the ecosystem of poverty is what causes foster care, and we're not dealing with evil people who hate their children. We're dealing with people who don't have the tools, the skill sets, and the resources to be able to care for them. And so I had, uh, we had been working with a family, a young mom who had stage three cancer and her four young kids. Um, she passed away, and we got a call asking if someone would take those kids in. And so we said yes, and that was at the beginning of the pandemic, and we haven't stopped since then. Um, we just had a sibling set of two with us um, for the last year and a half, and they just went back home to their mom, which is always our goal, to see these parents get healthy so they can get their kids back. And so Family Table works with the three groups that we believe have the greatest power to make the difference. Um, the first is the local church, because the local church are the ones who have been doing it first, doing it best, and are the ones that can provide a safe and stable family for the 35,000 children in Los Angeles County, which, by the way, is the worst child welfare crisis in the entire nation. Um, so LA is ground zero. The second group is foster families. We run regular support groups to make sure that foster parents have the tools that they need. They have the support that they need. And then we also do recruitment efforts. I partner with local uh, state government, DCFS. We do recruitment events to try to bring more people into the fold. And then the third group are um, partner agencies, people who actually have the money and the resources to be able to throw at the problem. And I just help make sure it gets to the places where it needs to, rather than ineffective programs that have been in place for years and years. So um, thank you for your support of Family Table. It has been phenomenal to see what God has been doing, not just in the help that I receive as a foster dad, but through all of the families that we support and serve and the churches that we've been involved in coaching and training. So thank you. Um, Philippians chapter 3. If you have a Bible, turn there. In every one of Paul's epistles, he turns a corner where he goes from doctrine to practice. In Philippians, this is Philippians chapter 3. And he's simply going to be talking about the way we live in Christ. It's a, actually a very simple message. He talks about, he uses his favorite illustration, walking in Christ. And he gives some examples of the way different people walk, the way he walks, and then he invites them to have a different mentality about the way they follow Jesus. But have you ever thought why the term walk is so frequently used in Scripture to describe our life in Christ? He could have used any number of illustrations. Even if you are here this morning and not a follower of Jesus, chances are you know the term walking with God from popular culture, if not from Scripture. Why is that? I've always loved how the first Christians in the, books of, in the book of Acts were called followers of the way. The very first Christians were called followers of the way, not knowers of truth, not changers of culture, followers of the way. 
which suggests that there is more a path to be walked than a set of rules to learn. And if there's a path that actually needs to be walked, instead of simply talking about that path, we need to stand on it and begin to learn what that looks like and how we can navigate it. So when you read the Bible, you see walking all over the place. There's the physical walking on the road to Emmaus, Jesus walking on water, Paul walking for his missionary journeys. There's also the metaphorical walking, which is Enoch walked with God and was not. Noah walked faithfully with his God. The prophet Micah says, walk humbly with your God. And then in the New Testament, it picks it up again, walking in the Spirit, walking by faith, not by sight, walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you've received. This is literally all over Scripture. This image of walking as an example of how we follow Jesus. And even today, we all walk. Some of us do it for exercise. Some of us do it to clear our minds. Some of us do it to walk the dog. Some of us do it to get away. But we all walk most of the time without paying attention or being aware. Even if it's simply getting from your car to the store, you have to get out and walk. And we typically don't think about walking until we're incapacitated or in some way can no longer walk the way we used to, as naturally happens when you're sick and you can't use a part of your body that you're so used to using, you realize how thankful you were to be able to do all of those things. So Paul is going to use this language to describe our manner of life in Christ. In verse uh, 17, he first starts and says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example. Next verse, he talks about those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. The famous parable of the prodigal son is the story of a father with two sons, each of whom walks in a different way. The older son goes to the father, asks for his inheritance, and walks away from the father to live in a far country. The second son stays home and walks with the father every single day, but when his older brother comes back after wasting all of his money, his father wants to throw a party, and the younger brother, who never left, gets upset. Tim Keller, in his commentary on that, calls that um, the moralist and the irreligious. The moralist are those who walk away from God, not by doing bad, but by doing good. It's doing everything right for all the wrong reasons. And that's a great way to hide from God, and it happens in churches every single week. The irreligious are those who walk away from God by selfishness. They do whatever they want to do without any regard. So both of them are ways of walking, and both of them are ways of avoiding God. So Paul is simply going to show those as illustrations, then the bulk of the passage is spent looking at a different way. <clears throat> Look at verse 1 through 6. We'll start out with the moralist, doing good for the wrong reasons. Philippians 3.1, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and safe for you. Look out for the dogs, for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. 
For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul is starting out by addressing these group of legalists that were trying to deceive the Philippians. They were telling these largely Gentile followers that they had to be circumcised in obedience to the Jewish law to follow Jesus. And Paul's main argument there is that those who walk with Jesus put no confidence in our own flesh. It is not the works that we do that commend us to God, but the relationship that exists. And so he says, you can follow the law all day long and still not be in a better place. He uses that language over and over again because it's possible to do everything right and still get it wrong. And so in verse 9, he's going to pick that back up and he says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Those, those who, hmm, let me say it this way. Some of you in this room are naturally nicer people than others. By temperament. So my wife legitimately is a good girl. When I met her, she wasn't a Christian, but she was the kind of girl that would go to soup kitchens and serve poor people, like on her own. She went to church, but she wasn't a follower of Jesus, but she's just nice. And I'm shady, like still kind of shady. And when I wasn't a Christian, I was the most selfish person alive. It's taken me a long time to work on that. But the idea of serving someone else when you don't have to is just stupid. And so I met my wife a day after I became a Christian. And we were all at a big restaurant. A big group of us were there. I saw her sitting at a table. And I had to figure out how Christian guys spit game because I had no idea how that was going to go down. (laughs) But I walk over there. I start talking to her. We're walking out of the restaurant, my father comes alongside, he knows her, and my father says, if you corrupt that girl, I will kill you. (laughs) My father loves my wife, and he was exactly the kind of girl that a parent hopes their son marries. And so we got in a relationship with each other, because the game worked, because I got it for days, and we ended up dating. And I realized, like, she's really just a nicer person than me. But here's what happened. What I found is that there are people of a certain temperament for whom goodness comes naturally, so it's easier for them to think they're closer to God. Now, here's what happened. She got angry when she came to know me. And I was like lit up on fire. I had just turned 180. My entire life was changing. I was reading the Bible all day long. I was volunteering every, like I was so in it. And she got angry at me because kids who live like that should not be closer to Jesus than me. 
And she was legitimately angry and confused. How is it this guy who has lived his whole life, like she went to church with my dad. They knew about me as a prayer request long before anybody ever met me. And she got angry. How is this kid closer to Jesus than me? I'm the one going to the soup kitchen. I'm the one serving other people. I do all the right things. And she couldn't understand how that worked. There are some people who will naturally run from God, not by wrongdoing, but right doing. The historian uh, John Gerstner calls that our damnable good works. There is actually a regular category for those who trust in their own goodness, and Paul has some, exam- has some experience with that. So in verses 4 through 6, he talks about his own credentials. He says, I was all of these things, and if you think you follow the law, I did it better. Eighth, circumcised on eighth day, the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. He was genuinely trying to follow God. Let's get that clear. Paul was genuinely trying to follow God the only way he knew how, and he found that he was still missing the point, because this is how goodness can keep us from God, just the same as badness. Goodness really only works when it's a fruit of the Spirit, not something that's contrived or that we're trying to be, but something that comes naturally from a heart that's been transformed by a relationship with Jesus. And when we realize that God is after our heart, not our good works, it is deeply freeing. I've never understood, again, I didn't grow up in the church, but I have since, of course, been in a lot of church environments, and I never understood how Christianity became synonymous with a guilt trip. The idea that God is just after our works and what we do, and I don't understand how a way of life that depends on God's grace, not our good works, could in any way be construed as a guilt trip. Like, the whole message is literally, it is not a matter of what you and I do. It's a matter of what God has done for us, and then we naturally respond to that. So that's the first example of people that he gives. Then he moves to the irreligious. Those are the people who live bad for selfish reasons. There's nothing in them that compels them to do anything other than what they want to do. This is where I was and am as compared to my wife's moralist. Look down, we're going to go to verse 18, then we're going to come back. Paul says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So after warning about the danger of doing good, he points to those who walk actively opposed to God, and he calls them enemies of the cross. And it's interesting because these people are the exact opposite of the moralists and the legalists, and yet they both have a lot in common. 
they're both self-righteous. One of them is trusting in their own goodness, the other's trusting in their own desires. They're both arrogant. They're both a way of living that allows us to look down on other people who aren't doing what we're doing. Um, Both of them are ways of pleasing ourselves. Again, one of the reasons why good works is such a potent affirmation is that I feel better about myself. Like, hey, I'm doing what I should be doing, therefore, either God's now in my debt or I can check out and I've done what I'm supposed to do. It's the same thing, but these ones are simply selfishly focusing on the kingdom of now. Whatever is happening right in front of me in this moment is the most important thing. That's why Paul says that these people, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. And Paul points to the future resurrection as a motivation for our present walk, which is to say, it's impossible to walk that path with Jesus without looking ahead and then reverse engineering. So instead of these people who are living just in the moment, he says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The kicker with that, though, is even though he has the power to subject all things to himself, he doesn't flex that power, he invites. He invites both the legalist and the the moralist as well as the irreligious to consider the way they're walking and see if there is something different. Because being enslaved to our desires, something which I know quite a bit about, is all about cheap substitutes when God is after something much deeper and bigger for us. It is so easy to say yes in the moment and then immediately regret afterwards because there is a lot of substitutes. So, uh, porn, for all that it is, is a substitute for intimacy. Gluttony and drunkenness is, an in, is a, a substitute for actual deep enjoyment. Entertainment is a substitute for rest. There are all of these pleasurable things that feel good in the moment, but are substitutes of something truer and deeper. And I know that, especially for entertainment, I will get so tired and I'm too tired to do much of anything else. And so I can sit there and just scroll through the phone or watch a show, and then I'll end up staying up till midnight or one, which for me is like staying up till four in the morning for some of you probably. And I I wake up the next morning and I'm no more rested for having done nothing the day before. They're all substitutes. God is looking for something more for us. Okay. Let's, uh, let's go back to verse 7, and I want to spend the bulk of our time here talking about three things that Paul calls our attention to about the way we walk with Jesus. So I, um, I go for a walk uh, probably three to four times a week. Um, I go out in the evenings, and I usually walk by myself. And I walk as a means of reflection on my day and meditation. I find that I think better when I'm moving. 
I have a lot of energy to burn off most days, and so most of my play is active. And so I, I love walking. But every once in a while, I'll invite someone else to walk with me, and walking with someone else is a very different experience because I know my pace. I know the way that I walk. I know where I go faster or slower. But then you walk with someone, and if they're walking too fast, it's like, where do you have to be? Why are you so far ahead? Or you go for a walk with the kids, and their little legs are lagging behind. You end up just picking them up and keep walking so you can go. You have to match your pace to someone else, because walking with another person is actually a very interactive experience for both of us. And I think that's why this illustration is used so often in Scripture. That walking with Jesus requires attentiveness. It requires um, being present. It requires talking. It requires listening. It requires engaging. And it requires being aware of the path that we're currently walking together. And so as Paul is going to keep this, he talks about three big areas that change the more we walk with Jesus. The first is our perspective. We end up walking with a very different perspective or outlook on almost every aspect of life. The second is that we stop walking aimlessly and we walk with purpose. There's actually somewhere we're going and a goal. And then the third thing is that our walk with Jesus always involves other people. Always. So let's look at this in, in perspective in verse 7 through 9. So after he's just laid down all of his credentials, he says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So the word perspective literally means a particular attitude or way of regarding or engaging the world around us. Our perspective is the way that we think about life. And one of the things that happens when we walk with Jesus is he takes well-established perspectives and ways of thinking and challenges it. If you have never found yourself angry with God for thinking something different than you do, you haven't actually encountered God. If it turns out the God you serve thinks the exact same way as you about every single issue, that's a pretty clear sign you're not actually following the God of the Bible, but the God that you made up in your mind to affirm everything that you already believe. It's, it's confirmational bias. I naturally like people who think the same way as I do about everything that I think about it. And what happens is he continually changes our perspective. So we just showed the kids Titanic. Um, doesn't hold up as well as I remember from 99 or whenever it came out. And ultimately, Titanic is a story about hubris. 
These human beings created an unsinkable ship that there's no way it could go down, and we're so sure about it. But one of the things that I was paying attention to is it's also a story about perspective. So famously, all the wealthy people had bunks and staterooms in the upper part of the deck. The poorer people had bunks and staterooms in the lower part of the deck. But as soon as the ship starts sinking, no one's going back for their nice ornate teapots or their jewelry. When they realize they're about to be afloat at sea, they start looking for common things like water and food and life preservers. Because the value of an object changes in the environment and situation that it's in. So right now, if I know that I'm going to be taken care of and I'm not going hungry, I'm going to really think that that dollar bill is going to be much more valuable than something common. But when you get thrown into a survival situation, your perspective on what is the most important thing changes. It has to. And as we walk with Jesus, this happens so often. Look at the language that Paul uses three times. Verse 7, whatever gain I had, I counted, I considered, I tallied as loss. Verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss. Later on, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish. This is just a reconsidering which is part of the reason why following Jesus is hard, because it means you're going to be wrong more than you're right. And we don't like that. But if there is not a regular change of thought and mind and heart as we walk more with Jesus, that's likely a problem. So one of the things that Jesus does is he changes our perspective on what is and is not valuable. One of the things that Jesus most famously does is take the values of the world and contrast them to the values of the kingdom of God and flips all of those things on their head. So now all of a sudden, we read that our strength is actually in weakness. That even though we're poor, yet we are made rich. That it's actually better to be known by God than being popular like all of the people that, re- that lived in a previous generation. He takes one human value after another. Ecclesiastes is better to go to the house of mourning than to a party because that's the end of all mankind and the living will take it to heart. Think about that. <laughs> We've spent our entire lives simply trying to be happy. The sum total of most of our decisions is hopefully going to lead to something that makes me feel better about myself and the world around me. And now, Scripture wants to challenge that and say suffering's actually good. It's not that you seek it out, but when it comes, God's in that too. And now, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who weep, blessed are those who are hungry now. He changes our perspective on all those things. But he also changes our perspective on growth and maturity. What we see here is that Paul learned from his past and did something about it. He's already thrown his credentials. This is who I was. And then he says, but I reconsidered. I thought about the things I thought were valuable and I changed my mind. This is something that's very difficult for us. 
to say, you know what? I used to think that way and I no longer do. I changed my mind. I could say probably about every five years or so, I can look back on something that I was sure of. And this is the danger of having a personality like mine. I so vehemently assert my opinion, people think it's like absolute objective truth. And then I'm like, actually, I don't think that anymore. Like, how how can you not think that anymore? I have a different set of experiences now. I know different people. I know Jesus better. I don't know that I think the same way that I used to. But that's the, Paul's perspective of growth. He talks about forgetting what is past and moving forward to the future requires self-examination, which some of us are pretty terrible at. I think one of the reasons for that is in the West at least, this has not been my experience elsewhere in the world, American Christians tend to have more of a cerebral experience with Jesus at first. It is a mental recognition or an understanding of doctrine or theology that then leads us to get better about knowing things about God than knowing God. And let's be honest, when you know a lot of things about God, people assume you know God. This has been my biggest learning curve as a pastor for two decades. Homeboy comes in fresh out of seminary, and this guy knows all of the language. And he starts impressing everybody in the room with all of his $12 words and what he understands about transubstantiation and substitutionary atonement. And people begin to think, how could someone not know God if they know that much about him? Well, because goodness is a way of running from God, too. And sometimes, people's knowledge of God far exceeds their character or their actual experience with God. And the problem is this doctrine and theology is right. It's true. But Paul says that that knowledge puffs up, whereas love builds up. And that kind of sacrificial love isn't something that spits out knowledge to be able to make ourselves feel better or to manipulate you into thinking that I'm actually closer to God. So, theology is meant to illuminate the way, not replace it. And one of the things that we do is we get so good at studying the map that we never get to walking the path that the map charts. And because walking that path is going to require mistakes, walking that path is going to require suffering, walking that path is going to require being wrong a lot of the time, We settle for becoming these great cartographers who study the maps and the elevation and the path. And we can tell you all about the path that exists without ever actually stepping on it. Which is why there is something intangible when you are with someone who knows God. You are less impressed with their knowledge and you are more impressed with their God because they just have that attitude and sense. Sometimes we know the map so well, we forget how to admit that we're lost. Or because we know where we should be, we substitute that for where we actually are and what the gaps in our experience with God is. The biggest perspective shift for those who follow Jesus is that you've never arrived. 
Paul is going to say this in the very next passage. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on. Like, I'm not there yet because there's always somewhere greater to be. There's always a different level of maturity. There's always a deeper um, relationship with Jesus to enjoy because he is always going to be infinitely bigger than what I can possibly comprehend at any given moment. And so we have to be willing to do that. The soul that refuses to reevaluate withers. And that's hard when you are in a position of leadership where people look to you and what you think about certain things to be able to say, I think I might have been wrong on that. And I'm going to ask you to actually be good Brians and study it instead of taking what I say as the word of God. Because sometimes I don't get it right all the time either. A life without revision will silence our souls. And so there ought to be a markable difference in that revision and what we see him changing. The second thing that Paul talks about here is walking with purpose in verses 10 through 16. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we attained. So he's saying here that our walk is not aimless. There's a goal. And that goal, one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, That one thing that he talks about is knowing Jesus. He says it in verse 8. He says it in verse 10. He continually is repeating, I counted everything that I once thought true as loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And if the goal is knowing Jesus, then the destination is less important than the journey. Because there's a lot of ways to know and encounter God And one of the things that Paul is saying here is he is willing to encounter Jesus in whatever means he can. He says in verse 10, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I might attain the resurrection of the dead. It's possible to know Jesus through his suffering And it's possible to know Jesus through the power of his resurrection, but we typically prefer one of those to the other. But the fact is, whatever circumstances or environment we find ourselves in, there is built in an invitation from Jesus to know him through that, to be able to consider our walk, to be able to consider the path, to be able to consider others around us, and to be able to consider what Jesus might be doing when my life does not look the way I hoped it would. 
what happens when we're stuck in that in-between space of who we currently are, where we would like to be, and what God's not doing for me to get me there. Even those confusing in-between spaces are spaces that are an invitation to know God deeper, and Paul is recognizing this. But again, we've minimized the phrase knowing God into knowing things about God. And just simply knowing facts about who he is. But this is more than a mental exercise. So in the Greek language, this word know is translated in the Old Testament as Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore a child. The same word for knowing God is used of intimacy between a husband and a wife. We're not talking about some mental exercise where you took good notes at Bible study. We're talking about a level of intimacy that requires vulnerability, that requires openness, that requires willingness, and that requires literally the mingling of two people together. Which is why Matthew 21, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, that's not just attend a Bible study. That is loving God with your heart. What does that look like? Loving God with your soul. What does that look like? Loving God with your emotions. What does that look like? We all have people that can shepherd us in our minds by imparting knowledge and wisdom. That's easy. We also typically have people who can motivate us to get up and do something and be productive. But very often, there's fewer people who shepherd our hearts to Jesus and shepherd our soul to be turned towards him in a distinct and different way where we are actually encountering and experiencing him. That is what Paul talks about when he talks about knowing God. And then the last thing. He talks about people. He does it in every one of his epistles. You can't escape it. He tells them in verse 17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us and beware of those enemies of the cross don't walk in the same way that they walk. So imitate me. Watch others because both sets of people are going to have an impact on your life. It's unavoidable. So one of the things that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit teaches us is that when God takes up residence in our lives through the Holy Spirit of God upon our salvation, He changes our capacity to listen to and engage with God. He changes our desires to actually want the things of God. But it's not just the Holy Spirit that does that, because you and I have been created as deeply relational creatures, and our souls are permeable, which means they're malleable, they're pliant, they're not static, they can change, which is why our soul requires renewal and care and restoration. We need to pay attention to it. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, bad company corrupts good morals because the kind of company you keep changes you. 
And one of the biggest lies, the sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will ever hurt me. Like, that is the worst lie in American culture, because the things you heard said about you as a child literally have become your script for how you view yourself and other people. Those words matter, because the things that people have either pronounced over us as true or as false end up lodging themselves in our soul and become the rubric for how we see ourselves to this day. And they're typically insignificant things. There's a kid, Andrew Winger. I'm sure he's a perfectly fine human being. But when we were in sixth grade, my parents told me that I had to get out and choose a sport, so I chose soccer. And I realized halfway through the season that I hate soccer. My apologies to the rest of the world. Um, It's just not my sport. And so I told my parents I want to quit soccer, and they said they, they had enough battles with me to deal with. They're like, you tell the coach, you tell the team, you're good. So I go and do that, and then as I'm walking off the field, Andrew Winger yells out, hey, quitter Mike Brown, thanks for leaving us hanging. Now, it's, a, it's a, probably even meant in a silly way, but something about that lodged itself in the deepest part of who I am where most of my life, in one way or another, has been proving that I will never quit. Which means I don't let go even after I should. Which is the nice way of saying I'm stubborn as hell. Even when I should stop, I don't because I'm not a quitter. A sixth grade kid has shaped the way that I think about so much in one offhand way, our souls are permeable. And the kind of company that we keep and the kind of people we keep that company with shape our walk with Jesus. Healthy relationships change us. And that is partly why gathering together on Sundays with other people changes us. It's not simply the things that are said or even the people that are with us, but what it feels like to be in their presence. What it feels like to be around other people. You know what I'm talking about. There's some people you just meet and you're like, "Mm mm-mm. And I can't say why, I just know there's red flags all over that. And for me, because of my own story, that's the guys who come into my church and immediately want to impress me with their theology. Like, all right. I'm, I'm, and now I don't even enter into that anymore, like, no. But then there's other people, you're like, I also can't describe it, but I like this person. They're guileless. Like, they are just open and honest. Or that small group that you're a part of, where one person finally gets brave enough to share about an actual struggle in their life, and then the Bible answer person in that small group speaks up and starts beating them over the head with the Bible and scriptures, And then when it comes turn for the next person to share their struggles, they're like, well, I just haven't prayed enough this week. I need need you to forgive me because I only read my Bible four times this week. And no one's going to begin to share anything of any level of vulnerability once you know that person's in the room. That's your soul being shaped and recognizing that a receptive, open presence changes the way that you show up. So 
the challenge here from this passage for all of us is just to consider, I would ask you, what is some perspective that you can point to that's legitimately changed because of your walking with Jesus? What purpose does your life in Christ have right now? Are you aware that there's a place somewhere he's leading us to? That there is always a deeper way to know him than we currently do that is going to require revision? And what kind of people am I surrounding myself with and spending time with to both shape me for good and for learning? (laughs) How am I being shaped and changed by those people? That's what Paul is encouraging us in Philippians chapter 3. Pay attention to the way you walk. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for this book and for all of the wisdom. And I always feel like every time I teach out of Philippians, I'm missing it. Like I'm scratching the surface of something that is far deeper than I have ever gotten to. And yet I I want to ingest the fullness of it. I want to let the word of Christ dwell in my heart richly. And I want to know you through it. Would you give us all the grace to be able to recognize when we are not yet who we hoped we would be? And would you give us the grace to know that that is who you invite? Not our ideal selves, but our actual selves to come and know you, to wrestle with your word, to live with your people, and to develop our purpose. Any of this, all of this, is a gift from you. And so I pray that your spirit would soften our hearts, open our ears, and allow us to walk in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.